It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. What's up? You're, you're just, you're making it. You're having an adequate day. Uh, vitals are within normal limits. Dude, <laughs> I, I think I found my, it, it, it's my spirit person. I know people talk about like spirit okay. animals, spirit whatever, but this woman at the at my coffice, she, she's gotta be in her early seventies. So, you know, whatever, she's septuagenarian, she's cantankerous, which is on brand for me. Uh, and then as she was leaving today, she says, hopefully you have a reasonable week. And I was like, (laughs) that's something I I would say. Yeah. So, so I said, hopefully you have an above average rest of your day. And she (laughs) tipped her cap and was on her way. And I go, Oh man. I, at first I was like, mom, is that you? <laughs> I was like, no, no, not her. Uh, in any case, things, things, uh, going all right for you otherwise. Yeah. Uh, have a little bit of a stretch off from the hospital at the moment, been working on various other side projects and writing letters of recommendation for folks and evals and things like that, that I need to do on the, on the side and training is fine. <laughs> so here we are. We've got yeah. a seminar coming up this week. Oh yeah. We're going to be in Atlanta. Uh, so we'll be, well, technically I think it's Alpharetta. That seems to be a place maybe like there's a longitude and latitude for that. Yeah. yeah. We'll find out. Uh, so we'll be in Atlanta this weekend for our two day health and performance seminar. We're also going to be in New York at, uh, uh, South Brooklyn, uh, CrossFit South Brooklyn, our, one of our favorite places over there, uh, in May. And then we'll be announcing some other dates for our new painted rehab seminar, uh, as well as, uh, additional, times for our two-day health and performance seminar coming up. But if you're interested in attending one of our live in-person workshops, check that out in the link in the description below. I will say I was at our new uh, pain and rehab seminar uh, last weekend in Miami. Uh, it's been pretty much overhauled um, and is, I would say, much improved. And it was phenomenal. It was very well received by everybody that was there. Um, the talks went great. We had breakout sessions. I led some of the breakout sessions as well as Cam and um, Charlie and Derek each had their own little breakout groups. Um, everybody had some some solid discussions and brainstorming and and some, some great interactions in the small groups. Um, and then did a little bit of practical stuff and it all went very well. So would encourage uh, folks who are in the rehab field. We also had some coaches, personal trainers who are not, you know, professional rehab clinicians attend and they all had also great things. They said it was very accessible and they were able to follow it and take things away from it um, for their own clients who were were dealing with pain issues and things like that. So I think our rehab team is aiming for something um, more on the West coast at some point later in the year. And so once they get that lined up, I would encourage anybody who is interested and has uh, the means to, uh, to attend would go for it. Yep. And, uh, that seminar should be, uh, granting CEUs for not only physical therapists, but also for coaches, uh, through NSCA, NASM. And then if you're a general training enthusiast curious about this, well, that, that probably doesn't change the bottom line for you either way. It's going to be a great course, uh, on today's podcast, episode 211, we're going to be talking about water intake food fluid intake and performance. Physiologically, hydration plays important roles in both health and performance, including temperature regulation, metabolism, biochemical reactions, and circulatory function. More than half of athletes from youth to professional levels of competitiveness show up to workouts 
quote unquote, dehydrated. On this episode, we'll go deep into the science in an attempt to shed some light on what and how much you should be drinking to maximize health and performance. First up, this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer's has belts to fit your needs and will custom make a belt to your specifications. This week, we are running a special giveaway for a custom belt made by Pioneer. That's right. A custom belt made to your specs is up for grabs. To enter, head over to Pioneer's Instagram page, Pioneer underscore fit. Follow them, comment on, and like the post featuring the custom belt they made for me. It says Barbell Medicine, so you can't really miss it. It's a white belt with Barbell Medicine embroidered on it. And uh, yeah, if you do all that, you'll be entered in a chance to win a custom belt. Now, they said no exotic materials. And I said, what What kind of materials are exotic? And he says, well, like snakeskin and stuff. And I was like, Is, wait, what? Can you get like a roll of snakeskin to make a belt? But in any case, other than that, uh, yeah, your wish uh, is uh, something they can do. Uh, so entries will close next Tuesday and we'll pick a winner. Uh, Matt from Pioneer and myself will uh, get together and uh, randomly draw a winner. So, yep, head over to their Instagram page, Pioneer underscore fit. Give them a follow, comment on and like the post. Uh, it's going to go up by the time you're reading this. And, uh, yeah, be entered to win a custom belt. Uh, also, if you're interested, we still have some new merch on our website. If you want to support Barbell Medicine, check out the Barbell Medicine Lifting Club gear. Um, also have new uh, flags uh, still available before we make our next run. So pick those up while they're still there. And, uh, yep, still uh, working on some some YouTube stuff, trying to review your guys' technique. So if you have a form check you want to send in, uh, send it to media at barbellmedicine.com. Ideally, this would be uh, landscape, so your phone turns sideways on a multi-rep set of squats, bench, press, deadlift, uh, something like that. Again, please do not send me your swimming form checks or golf swing analysis. We'll wait until we officially jump the shark to do either one of those things. Uh, I will say, though, uh, I talked to Cassie Neiman, one of our coaches, and she's like, hey, if you want to get some rowing technique videos, we can collab right. on some uh, cool. rowing form checks. And she's like, why don't you take a video of yourself rowing? And I was like, hey, 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 let's not get out of hand here. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to subject myself to that. But yeah, if you're uh, on the rower and wondering if your row technique could uh, be improved, uh, your efficiency could be improved, send that over to media at com, And uh, we'll have Cassie take a look at it, put it up on YouTube and uh, go from there. Uh, so in any case, we're going to talk about hydration today. And um, I, I was telling Austin off air, I probably went through uh, almost half a dozen different iterations of this outline with some of them super heavy on the physiology, really into the weeds. But what I really wanted to give our audience here is something practical to take home as far as like, all right, how do you assess? Do you need to be drinking more? Uh, what should you be drinking? When should you be drinking it? And how would this affect performance? Um, because there's just a lot of BS out there. Just There's just so much. And I mean, Austin, can you think about you know, a time people have either said to you or with an earshot of you just, Oh, you know, you should drink more water or just drink more. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I can think of it across my athletic career. You know, when I was swimming in the context of even in the context of powerlifting and meets in the context of like any illness that I've ever had, whether it was related or whether it impacted my level of hydration or not um, at work in the hospital as a resident on day shifts on night shifts like yeah just universally good i think when anything <laughs> bad happens the first thing is hey do you need some water it's yeah. like you could have a limb like severed and someone's like do you want you want some water it's like 
<laughs> okay, I'm going to need, let's take a step back here. Uh, but in any case, I wanted to get into this, get into the science. And uh, yeah, so let's talk about it. All right. So first off, what is hydration? In humans, total body water and overall hydration are normally maintained within a relatively narrow range, about 1% of hyperhydration. That's higher than normal hydration levels to 3% hypohydration. That's below normal levels of hydration. But let's go a little deeper. What does this actually mean? Total body water is just what it sounds like. It's the total amount of water contained within the body. Humans are about 60% water by mass, though this ranges from 45 to 75% primarily due to body composition. So the more lean body mass you carry, the more body water you have, the less lean body mass you have, the lower amount of total body water that you have. Uh, so fat-free mass, muscle, organs, etc., are about 70 to 80% water, whereas fat mass, adipose tissue, is only about 10% water. So more lean body mass, more water, less lean body mass and more body fat, less water. Uh, like I said, total body water is normally regulated very tightly, usually within 0.2 to 0.5% of body mass under resting conditions. Obviously, this can change with exercise, activity, exposure to harsh environments. If you're trekking across the desert, yeah, things are going to change a lot more. But on a day-to-day -day basis, it's usually regulated very, very tightly by multiple redundant homeostatic mechanisms that are basically in place to make sure that, uh, you know, we live long enough to pass on our genes. That's really, that's the teleological argument there. So, uh, hydration overall describes the state of an individual's total body water. So you hydration spelled EU, like the European union hydration is where an individual's total body water is maintained with minimal adjustment by physiological mechanisms and the body's systems function most efficiently in this state. This can be thought of as normal baseline. So when somebody is euhydrated, they have a normal amount of total body water. Again, we think things work most efficiently here. Performance is maximized. Health trajectory with respect to total body water is quote unquote optimized, even though we don't like that term. And again, this is euhydration or euhydrated, which is spelled EU hydration. Uh, conversely, hypohydration describes a situation where an individual's total body water is reduced. And this exists on a continuum from mild to severe based on the body mass deficit. Uh, finally, there's hyperhydration. This is where an individual's total body water is increased, again, reflected by body mass. Uh, but this time, instead of it being less, it's an increase. So more than normal. Now, Austin, in the hospital, you guys don't use hypohydration, hyperhydration, I assume. Uh, no, not on a regular basis. That's not um, that's not usually the terminology we're talking about. And and this water is so important to to so many aspects of physiology, but it um, does different things uh, in different compartments. And so you know we'll we'll get into this a little bit more. But you mentioned that humans are sixty percent water by mass, but that is distributed in different ways across different compartments, and that water can flow across those compartments in response to various sorts of, you know, physiological changes, certain kinds of pressures and where sodium is and things like that. Um, and so typically in the hospital, I'm most concerned, um, not so much with, you know, the, the, the hyper or hypohydrated state, but rather, um, where this fluid is, uh, and if they have too much of it, where it is being distributed, do they have too much inside their vasculature in the in the in the blood vessels, causing things like congestive heart failure? Um, that's a term that some people might have heard. That congestion refers to having a, really it's too much total body sodium, and their 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 um, blood vessels are kind of uh, constipated, yeah, right. <laughs> sort of too much fluid. Too much fluid. 
you can also have this water accumulate out in areas outside of the blood vessels and other body tissues. And we can see this with things like leg swelling. I can see fluid that accumulates around people's lungs or in their abdomens that need to be drained and, and various other uh, areas of the body. So I'm, so I'm typically more concerned with um, where this fluid is, if there's too much or too little, um, where, and in, in other words, the, the distribution of it, because the distribution of it will impact how I'm going to handle it. For example, if it's too little, do I need to give the person some IV fluids or if it's too much in the blood vessels, do I need to give them a diuretic to help them get rid of the sodium and the water there? Or is it someplace else entirely and I need to like stick a needle in them and drain it or something yeah. like that? Yeah, that that uh, is kind of a prelude to the complexity that describes fluid status overall. Yeah. But uh, yeah. at its very simple core, when we talk about total body water and like how much of it do you have, we can use the terms euhydration, hypohydration, and hyperhydration. Uh, a lot of times people can fuse or misuse or otherwise uh, use these terms interchangeably, uh, like dehydration, rehydration, dehydrated state to mean hypohydration, for example, but that's not really the case. And in fact, hydration status relates to the state of total body water, but the process by which total body water changes are the more familiar terms, dehydration and rehydration. So dehydration is the process of losing body water usually sweating during exercise, or for example, using a diuretic uh, to treat an individual who has excess body water. You're trying to get water out of various places. Uh, whereas rehydration is the process, again, of gaining body water, body water via ingestion of fluids or administrating them uh, via uh, IV, for example. Uh, and again, this can be very complex depending on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. You can talk about hypovolemia and where that excess volume of fluid is. Uh, you can talk about hypervolemia uh, and again, where and what the constant, you know, the, the actual characterization of that fluid is. Uh, and I didn't want to do that because all, all of that, you know, you could basically start talking about all sorts of different um, terms relating to the concentration of various electrolytes and proteins and other sort of factors that determine which way the fluid moves. But at the end of all that, once your eyes are fully glazed over, rolled back in the back of your head, you're still like, yeah, but how much water should I drink in a day? And it's like, yeah, we haven't even got there. So um, yeah, dehydration and hypohydration are often used interchangeably, but they're not really the same thing. So I just want to talk say that total body water is best described by euhydration, hypohydration, and hyperhydration, whereas the process by which that changes is dehydration or rehydration. But I'm sure, Austin, you've had interns and, and residents and maybe even colleagues say, oh yeah, this person's dehydrated. But you understand yeah. what they mean. I understand what they mean. Typically, I, I you know, I'm going to not be a super stickler about it. Although if I was wearing my nephrologist hat, uh, you know, pre, uh, my, uh, my uh, freelance nephrology hat that I would say, you know, probably when you say dehydrated, you probably mean they're hypovolemic and probably when you say they're hyperhydrated, you know. So anyway, I don't get that picky because I usually know what people mean as long as I can make sure that they're clear on what the underlying physiology is. Because oftentimes in the hospital setting, we're more concerned with what people's total body sodium levels are and dealing with that um, quite a bit more often than than uh, total body water uh, derangements is the primary issue. Yeah, but people also use like different terms if they're trying to be more casual to say, "Oh, this person's this patient's dry," or "This patient's you know fluid overload." You're like, "Wait, what? Like, are they uh, motion? Do they need a drink?" Yeah, or yeah, like, yeah, exactly. So, 
let's talk about where all this water is anyway. So as mentioned above, humans are approximately 60% water by mass, which means a 70 kilo, uh, kilogram dude is about 42 liters of water by mass. Of this 42 liters, about two thirds of it, or 28 liters, is contained inside the cells. And this is known as intracellular fluid, which is just how it sounds. This is water contained within the cells. Uh, the other one third, about 14 liters in the case of this 70 kilo dude uh, of total body water is outside of the cells and it's called extracellular fluid. So again, inside the cell, intracellular fluid, outside the cell, extracellular extracellular fluid. The extracellular fluid is broken down into two additional compartments. Three quarters of that uh, is called the interstitial fluid. This basically bathes and surrounds the cells in the tissues of the organs. And one quarter uh, of this remaining extracellular fluid is called plasma, which is the fluid component of blood. Um, so the blood has all a bunch of stuff in it. It's got formed elements, red blood cells, uh, for example, proteins and whatnot, the fluid component of the blood. We just call that plasma, basically. Um, it's worth pointing out just how little that is though. Right. And how important it is. So, you know, when people, when people have lost a lot of that fluid that we care about the most, their blood pressure goes down and, and there's a lot of consequences from it. Uh, but ultimately we're looking at one quarter that is that plasma compartment of the one third compartment. So it's like one twelfth of the overall kind of, so it's a relatively tiny fraction, but that's like a big part of where our blood pressure comes from, which is like the key to life is blood pressure. Yeah. So. If you lost a significant amount of that plasma or blood, uh, or if that plasma or blood has ent you know, entered other spaces, you could be kind of minimally hypohydrated, like a small amount, but have a crashing blood pressure that you'd be exactly. very low, have a lot of symptoms. And you're like, well, you dehydrated. It's like, mm, that's not really the problem here. The problem is why did all that plasma leave the intravascular space? And that's, yep. that's why they go see you. There's all sorts of interesting, you know, like capillary leak syndromes and all sorts of weird situations where that can happen. Uh, but just to illustrate the point that you can have a normal kind of like total amount of fluid in your body, but the distribution can lead to like death if it's distributed the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm you, I'm you hydrated, but uh, no blood yeah. pressure. Uh, bad news. Uh, so one way to think about this extracellular fluid space is that the interstitial fluid. So that gets again, the extracellular fluid compartment that bathes the cells and the tissues of the organs of the body uh, connects the intracellular space to the bloodstream. Various forces influence water movement between these different compartments, including hydrostatic, osmotic pressure, uh, and oncotic pressures. So the osmotic pressure being due to like sodium, potassium, glucose, and other osmotically active particles and oncotic pressure again, which is due to protein concentration. Again, the first iteration, I think of this outline, I like went way into the weeds there and I was like, this is not generally helpful for folks that are listening. So I just deleted all that and started over again. Uh, Austin, what are some common problems that you see in hospitalized patients with respect to fluid location? I can think of a handful, but I, I'm trying to think what is probably your most common? Is it edema? Probably Probably the most common that I see is what's called hypovolemia, like when somebody's had vomiting or diarrhea or something like that, and, and they don't have enough fluid going on, and we have to replace that with IV fluids. Um, although there are certainly situations where people can have too much, and that's when we see patients who are swollen up and fluid might be in their legs and leaking into their lungs and leaking into their abdomens. And again, that's more common with 
uh, heart disease, heart failure, and, and liver disease like cirrhosis and things like that. Um, and then definitely when people get really bad infections like sepsis, that's a situation where, um, and pancreatitis and a few other situations where our capillaries can get kind of leaky and that fluid can leak out of the vasculature where, so it's kind of distributed in a, in a bad way. Um, and we end up needing to give people fluids to keep them alive, but ultimately they come out of that with way too much in their body. And we usually have to fix that on the back end by getting it back out of them after they're recovered from their, you know, critical illness and things like that. So see so fluid on the low end, fluid on the high end, and then fluid that's distributed all wrong that we have to fix. So yep. see the whole spec. Yep. Not just as simple as you hydrated, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, or, and they're dehydrating or rehydrating. There's a bunch of other stuff going on, but for this podcast, I think that's a good overview of the nomenclature here. So, all right. How does this change with respect to exercise during exercise? Muscle contraction causes metabolic heat that is transferred to the bloodstream and then subsequently to the body's core. This requires transfer to the skin to be dissipated into the external environment. Uh, this is done via an activation of blood capillaries. So the, the junction between your arteries and veins, uh, the activation of the capillaries, uh, supply in the skin is the primary means of dissipating heat from the circulatory system, the blood vessels to the environment and vaporization of sweat accounts for about 80% of heat loss in hot, dry conditions. The sweating response is therefore critical to maintaining body temperature during exercise in the heat. If water loss via sweating occurs at a greater rate than fluid consumption, dehydration ensues, affecting both sweating and heat transport from working muscles. So basically, if you're sweating off more fluid than you're ingesting during activity, not only is your sweat rate going to go down, but because the sweat rate is going down, you're not going to be able to transfer the heat that you're creating by being active uh, as, as well. And so then your performance is going to tank as well. It's kind of like a, uh, you're getting it from both ends. Um, so for example, hypohydration of 2% or more decreases the sweat rate and onset of sweating body temperature and inability to maintain exercise intensity may be a result of that. Both sweat rate and composition are highly variable and based on genetics, the intensity and duration of activity, diet, the clothing or equipment worn body surface area, heat acclimatization. So people who are you know, have been at the current environment that they're exercising or competing in are more acclimated than those who are new to it. Uh, in general, sweat contains mostly sodium and smaller amounts of potassium, calcium, magnesium, and chloride. But all of these electrolytes are present in far lower concentrations than they are in the bloodstream. That means that sweating produces mostly water loss, not necessarily a reduction in electrolyte concentration in the bloodstream. So basically you're reducing uh, the amount of water floating around in the bloodstream, but not necessarily the amount of electrolytes. So you get this sort of hyperosmotic hypovolemia as a result of sweating. So basically, that just means that your the concentration of electrolytes is much higher than it normally is if you sweat a bunch, uh, and the volume of fluid that you have in your bloodstream tends to go down. Hyperosmotic, more more concentrated uh, particles and hypovolemia, less volume of body water. Uh, while it is possible to lose large amounts of sodium via sweat with very long, so like greater than four hours of activity in harsh environments, if it's really hot, uh, for example, um, acclimated individuals generally don't lose a lot of sodium. This is because sweat glands reabsorb sodium and chloride. Uh, and while the capacity to do so does not increase with sweat rate, heat acclimatization increases absorption. So acclimated individuals actually have lower sodium concentrations in their sweat. There's this sort of phenotype called a salty sweater, uh, but that tends to be more untrained individuals or people who are not acclimated to the environment 
by which they're either exercising or competing in. And so again, all of that is to say that yes, there's sodium, yes, there's chloride, magnesium, calcium, whatever else in your sweat, but it's not a whole lot. And so people kind of view sweat, they're like, oh, I'm just losing electrolytes. That's the problem. And it's like, eh, the real problem is you're losing, you're losing fluid. That's interesting. I mean, I know that you, I've heard you talk about this a bit before insofar as, you know, people always ask questions about things like sodium replacement and electrolyte replacement around intense exercise. And, and you've talked in the past about how a variable that can impact those decisions is like people's sweat rate and their sweat sodium content and things like that, which of course most people don't measure. Um, and that all made sense. I was not actually aware of significant kind of adaptation in the sweat composition as people kind of acclimate to, um, you know, harsher, harsher environments that that's actually a, a modifiable kind of thing. It makes sense. Of course, like so many other things, it's, it's kind of adaptive and protective, uh, towards, survival. Um, but I don't hear that talked about a lot, um, in the realm of like sports performance and like electrolyte supplementation and things like that. That's, I don't know that that's been considered a ton in, in people's recommendations for this. Yeah. I mean, I think when you read the recommendations for like fluid replacement and or electrolyte management within athletes, you see a whole bunch of hand waving, hemming and hawing about how much people should consume with respect to either fluid, uh, and also electrolytes. Cause they're like, look, this is all dynamic dynamic means it's changing yeah. over time and highly variable between individuals. So like without knowing how much you're sweating, so the sweat rate and the sweat composition, which, oh, oh by the way, changes all the time. <laughs> and most people don't have the, uh, you know, the technical access well, to do this. Yeah. You can, and how do you measure it? Right. So even if you were in a lab or, you know, really a high stakes sport where you had access to all this stuff, yeah, it's changing over time. And it's interesting. I listened to this uh, uh, lecture given by one of the uh, head scientists at Gatorade, like they're one of the research institutes and that what they do for professional uh, basketball players, for example, is at the beginning of the season, they'll actually measure their like urine specific gravity and they'll take blood samples and sweat samples and stuff like that and come up with the plan at time point one for the season. And some of that is due to just logistics. Like how do you do it? On, do you do it on a quarterly basis? Do you do it monthly? Do you do it weekly? Whatever. Uh, but the environment is relatively controlled for NBA players. They're usually in a similar environment each time. And so maybe there's not really a need for that unless fitness is changing significantly over time or the environment is changing significantly over time or, you know, worst case scenario is you'd have a run where you're like into overtime every single game and you're like, well, we didn't really plan for this. So, uh, yeah, just pretty interesting how, how this is being managed at the highest levels. But I, I want to convey that a lot of this is like more like a theoretical plan, uh, based on incomplete data and incomplete knowledge of like how it really affects folks. And so yeah. the goal of this podcast is to give you some practical tips on how to manage your own hydration status and, around exercise, uh, without getting too far in the weeds and, or just throwing up our hands and saying, eh, we don't really know. So, yeah. uh, now in saying all that, so we basically said that in general, uh, sodium, uh, while it is the predominant electrolyte in sweat, uh, people who are well-trained and acclimated to their environment tend to not lose a whole ton of it. And in fact, we lose pre predominantly water via sweat. But Austin, in the hospital, you see people all the time with low sodium levels. And so, you know, this would be under was 135. Uh, yeah. yeah. So when you see somebody roll in and you get their chem seven or their, <laughs> their blood chemistry and their sodium levels are 130 or 125, what immediately goes through your head? Yeah. Um, this is 
probably among the most, not probably, definitely among the most common electrolyte disturbances that that I'll see in practice. And this is also, you know, to some extent, we'll see it even in some, some outpatients, but I see it all the time in the hospital. Um, and this whole topic is a lecture that I probably give to my students and residents every single month. Um, we're going to keep it much simpler here. And sometimes we even have to explain it to patients because we're trying to, you know, explain to them what's going on. And they're like, oh, do I just need to put more salt on my food? And it's kind of paradoxical because blood sodium levels really um, are, are a better reflection of how much uh, water we have act in our uh, blood vessels where that test is being measured from. So when we talk about low blood sodium levels or hyponatremia, we usually describe it as a primarily a water problem. And the very most simple way that I can describe it is the person's either taking too much water in or they're not able to get enough water out through their kidneys typically. And then the reasons why somebody might not be able to get enough water out through their kidneys is either due to you know, advanced kidney disease, or because they're actually not eating enough, our kidneys actually need the, you know, solute that comes in our diet, things like salt and protein and things like that to actually produce urine. Um, or there's some, you know, hormonal um, effects, something called ADH antidiuretic hormone that's actually causing the kidneys to retain water and concentrate our urine. So we end up not peeing out quite as much water. And when you retain when you have too much water in there, again, due to too much in or not enough out, it kind of effectively dilutes your blood sodium level down. And so when I see a patient with that kind of situation, I'm trying to figure out um, where is the problem that's leading them to not excrete um, enough of this water. So I'm asking them questions like, "Are you, how much water do you drink? Tell me about your diet. Are you are you you know eating a normal diet, or are they barely eating much of anything? Um, or do I have reasons to suspect you know um, that this hormone could be causing them to concentrate their urine? So have they had vomiting or diarrhea? Do they have heart failure, cirrhosis? You know things like that. Are they on other medications that can that can cause that to happen? That's like the the, the simplest answer but but um, I, I do I do think it's worth mentioning because um, you know this comes up a lot where a lot of people might get their own labs and they might see a mildly low sodium level say it's 133 or 134 and they say oh I just need to put more salt on my food and it's like that may not actually be at all related to why this is happening hyponatremia is more often a water problem and it takes some some questioning some history taking and, and potentially some lab and detective work to get to the bottom of why is there too much water in your blood vessels uh, is it is it uh, too much in not enough out and and why would that be happening. Yeah. Just to, this is the PSA part of the podcast. In general, for most people listening to this, you do not need to add sodium to your diet. Adding <laughs> sodium to your diet would be unlikely to confer any benefit with a high risk of doing harm. And the harm here is that by adding more sodium to the diet, that tends to track very tightly with an increase in blood pressure. Now, if you are a very active athlete of uh, with a health promoting you know, uh, body, uh, body weight and body composition and, and a health promoting dietary pattern. Yeah. You may, you know, not see any untoward neg, you know, uh, effects of adding sodium, but I also don't think it's going to make you any better. There are a handful of conditions where adding sodium is like, yep, that makes sense. But this idea like adding sodium, that it's going to like markedly improve performance recovery or whatever, it's more high, more likely to increase your blood pressure than anything else. Uh, particularly for folks who maybe are borderline uh, with respect to metabolic health overall, you know, the waist circumference is pushing that limit. Body uh, fat is, you know, uh, higher than we'd want it to be. For example, cardiovascular fitness isn't quite as high as we'd want it to be, something like that, or other risk factors for high, high blood pressure. Just, in, I mean, we just see that relationship with people's dietary sodium intake and how that tracks with blood pressure. And it's like, how can you ignore this, you know, just from like a public health standpoint? 
Austin shrugs his shoulders. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what happens when hydration levels change. So with hypohydration, so reduction in total body water, performance tends to suffer when people lose uh, more than about 2% of body mass from their euhydrated state, though there are discordant results in lab versus field data that seem to be due to intra-individual differences and multifactorial nature of performance, meaning that, yet yeah, under a well-controlled laboratory setting, you can see a reduction in people's uh, power output, for example, wattage on an exercise bike or an increase in their RPE for a given piece done on a treadmill or, or stationary cycle or something like that, or a reduction in strength by whatever measure they're doing in the lab. But outside of that, in the field, it's just more complicated than like, oh, you lost 2% of your body mass, performance goes down. Uh, it just it tends to be more variable than that hard 2% cutoff. That said, when you read most of the literature on this stuff, 2% uh, body mass loss or more is where we start to see aerobic performance uh, decrements. Um, this is likely due to decreased capacity of the cardiorespiratory system and impaired thermoregulation. So with respect to the cardiorespiratory system, you see a reduced stroke volume because you've lost a bunch of uh, fluid, particularly in the blood vessels. You see an increased heart rate for a given amount of effort, increased systemic vascular resistance. Basically, the blood vessels go, oh, crap, where'd all this fluid go? And, and then they contract. So that increases the resistance to flow of blood. So blood pressure will go up. And then subsequently, you get a decrease in cardiac output. And if the cardiac output cannot maintain the needs of these active muscles, guess what happens to your performance? It, it goes down. Uh, and, and in fact, this is pretty well supported that for every 1% decrease in body mass, the heart rate goes up about three to five beats per minute. And at some point, you're now at your lactate threshold or above. And yeah, you cannot sustain the pace any longer, cannot sustain the effort any longer. Uh, and just to be very explicit and clear, you're talking about a 1% decrease in body mass during activity due to hypo hydro due to the process of dehydration yes. i don't want people to think that like if i lose you know, weight cut, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no but if you cut by a just water loss yeah yeah sure that can happen uh with respect to thermoregulation so yeah this is compromised due to decreased sweat rate when people lose uh body water so when they become hypohydrated through the process of dehydration uh this may not actually occur if it's cool outside not like oh well it's cool but like actually like cold temperature or when people are not thirsty. So these low thirst situations are kind of interesting. There seems to be this phenomenon called voluntary dehydration uh, when it's cold outside or and or wet. People will voluntarily let their body mass go down during an activity. They won't have a thirst response to that. And that seems to basically uh, attenuate any performance drop off due to being hypohydrated. Uh, but once you get above this 2% body mass loss, it kind of thirst kicks in. It doesn't really matter if it's cool or wet. The aerobic performance tends to suffer. Uh, in contrast, anaerobic performance is way more variable with respect to hypohydration, um, but tends to pop up at about 3 to 4% body mass loss. Uh, it is likely, despite all this variability in the, in the research, it is likely that eudehydration improves anaerobic performance uh, and particularly from a recovery standpoint. So for example, muscle protein synthesis rates require near eudehydration levels for maximal rates of muscle protein synthesis. This is in fact, one of the ways that creatine works. One of the ways that uh, betaine works actually draws water into the cells. And that is an anabolic signal for muscle protein synthesis. And so uh, I don't know that I can make a strong, confident claim that losing 2% of your body mass during a, you know, 
resistance training workout is going to really compromise performance at the end of your workout. Uh, but you'd want to shore that up afterwards uh, in order to recover appropriately. Um, and then finally, the last sort of risk of uh, when hydration levels go down, so when people become hypohydrated, is this risk of rhabdomyolysis. Now, the data here is not great because rhabdomyolysis has multiple variables that go into its occurrence. But I did want Austin to talk about rhabdomyolysis as far as what it is and how he views the contribution of hydration status. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't know that I can give a, a, a quantify, you know, how much hypohydration would lead to what increase in the risk of it. As you said, there's too many variables. Um, and so rhabdo or rhabdomyolysis is a situation where there is basically, you know, a, a lot of unchecked muscle breakdown that releases a variety of intracellular contents the the contents of the muscle cells get released into the bloodstream so things like potassium get released into the bloodstream uh creatine kinase gets released into the bloodstream myoglobin gets released in the bloodstream various other things that are inside muscle cells as they break open that stuff gets released and the myoglobin component in particular uh, which is a protein that basically binds oxygen um, itself can get filtered into the kidneys. Um, and when it is there, it can cause a significant injury to the kidneys, potentially to the extent of people needing dialysis, either temporarily or, you know, in worst case scenarios, longer term. And I've seen the full spectrum of, of rhabdo, really mild cases that didn't really need much of anything, more moderate to, you know, cases where I had to admit somebody and, and manage them for, you know, various complications of it and typically give them a lot of fluids to help, you know, keep things flushing through their kidneys among, among other things. And then also seeing the most severe situations, um, where people have ended up needing to, uh, needing dialysis while they were in the hospital because of the potential risks of their kidneys effectively shutting down in the situation of, of having rhabdo. But as we've mentioned, it's multiple factors and the, by far the, the the most glaring factor that leads to rhabdo is people doing way more than they are adapted to handle. Um, and so, uh, you know, like if we took an untrained person, they could be perfectly well hydrated, but if we put them through like a pretty routine workout for you or I, then they may well develop rhabdo because they're woefully underprepared for that. But a lot of times we see people who are doing more than they're ready for, and maybe they have an additional hit of, you know, having some, some hydration concerns, uh, inadequate hydration for their, for their session. I remember one like particularly bad example that I saw probably four or five years ago was a guy who's going through like police academy and they were of course making it unreasonably unnecessarily difficult. So they like locked them in this warehouse. It was in San Antonio. It was hot. They turned off the fans. They did not give them water and they had them do like 30 minutes of continuous air squats or something like that. And then the dude came in. Yeah. CK was like, I don't know, 70,000 or something like that. And he was in the hospital getting continuous IV fluids for like a week or something like that. He ended up being okay, but it was like, bro, like, did you ever question about whether this was a good idea? But I understand the occupational thing. You know, that's a that's a different different deal as far as, um, you know, how far you're willing to push yourself if you perceive the rewards to be, <laughs> you know, worthwhile. So yeah, it's definitely a concern. But um, more often for rhabdo, it's just people doing more than they're ready for. Yeah, I went down the rabbit hole pretty, pretty good on the, as far as hydration status and how does it actually affect rhabdomyolysis risk? Uh, rhabdomyolysis? Oh, boy rhabdo risk. <laughs> it's a, it's a mouthful. I think the strongest correlate that I have found is that because hydration status tends to, uh, affect thermoregulation that people yeah. are subsequently at higher risk of re heat illnesses 
uh, whether that be heat stroke or, or whatnot. And then actual this heat illness can be a risk in and of itself for rhabdo. And so, yeah, you get greater muscle breakdown uh, doing something you're not really prepared for in a harsh environment. Mm-hmm. Seems reasonable that could be associated with an increased risk. But as far as the actual mechanism under normal environmental conditions, eh, I don't really know. But I do know the yeah. treatment is flooding these people with fluids. Yeah, right. Man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next thing that commonly gets mentioned with respect to low hydration status, hypohydration is cramps. And so first we're going to talk about this from a medical standpoint. So like, Austin, what kind of things can cause cramps medically? Do you see this often in your hospitalized patients or is this more of something you keep in the back of your mind when it occasionally pops up? Yeah, I definitely do. I would say that for in in my line of work inpatient, uh, probably the situation where I see cramps most often is in the setting of cirrhosis and then certain electrolyte abnormalities, um, but not uh, electrolyte abnormalities that we would typically see in the general population. And I specifically mention that because of how often people just say, oh, if you're cramping, you need more electrolytes. And it's like the, the kind that I'm talking about are typically where people have pathologically low blood calcium levels, which does not happen to people who are free living out there in the world. It takes pretty significant, uh, you know, disease states to lead to pathologically low calcium levels. And, and uh, so so I see it in, in the hospitalized setting, um, you know, somewhat regularly and, and um, you know, would would handle that accordingly with electrolyte replacement, but it's very different scenario than what is commonly discussed out there, I would say in the, in the real world. Uh, but definitely cirrhosis is a common one. The rarer, there are various less common, like neurological, neuromuscular diseases, some metabolic conditions that you can be born with that I definitely do not see much of. Um, and then lots of other things. Uh, but those are probably the, the, the more common scenarios where I'll see. Yeah. I, the people ask like, Oh, can, uh, an electrolyte disturbance cause cramps, muscle cramps? And you're like, well, yeah, like if you have really low magnesium or calcium, yeah, yes, yeah. but you were not just walking around before <laughs> and happened to come up with a low calcium level unless you were in urgent need of medical care, in which case yeah. the cramp is like, all right, well, that happened as a tertiary thing to this other thing that happened as a result of this other thing. And yeah, we'll yeah. treat the cal- low calcium, but let's get to the root of this stuff. Yeah, what most people are talking about are this exercise-associated muscle cramps, EAMCs, as the uh, researchers like to call it. Just, I have no idea why they don't just call them cramps, but I guess you got to be specific. So they call them exercise-associated muscle cramps, EAMCs, which are painful, involuntary contractions of skeletal muscle that occur during or immediately after exercise. With respect to severity, they're on a continuum ranging from like pre-cramping or cramp-prone that's usually with twitching or fasciculations. It's pretty mild, self-limiting. To moderate, those have like a single muscle or muscle group cramp that is, again, self-limiting to severe, which is associated with other signs and symptoms like nausea and vomiting, dark urine, altered mental status, etc. So that's kind of on a continuum here. All of these correspond with an increase in resting EMG activity. That's EMG measures the muscle excitation. And so this is all increased, but the cause is more complicated. It's not just like, oh, your muscles are compli- are, uh, are excited. And so oh, that's a cramp. Um, the classic explanation here is regarding dehydration and electrolyte imbalance. This theory proposes that as a person loses body water, so they become hypohydrated, there are more and more excitatory neurochemicals and mechanical pressure present on the nerve terminals, so the where the nerve meets the muscle, which causes the muscle to fire and contract. There's a few problems with this theory, though. So when studied, the plasma osmolarity, which is the amount of 
uh, solutes uh, in the actual fluid. Uh, body mass change due to water loss and electrolyte concentrations are the exact same in those with and without cramps, suggesting that hey, maybe this really isn't the smoking gun here. Additionally, because body water and electrolyte losses are systemic, so they happen body-wide, cramps should occur in any muscle, not just the working ones, but that's not what we see. We see it in extended uh, high-velocity muscles like calves, hamstrings, et cetera, most commonly, not like, oh, man, this muscle in my hand is cramping up. <laughs> and that's, and that's to, be, uh, to give a good counterexample, that's what I would see in more of these like electrolyte this issues. Like if I have somebody who has, you know, a calcium level of six or something like that, I could make any muscle in their body twitch out of control. <laughs> uh, and it would not be specific to like what is necessarily being used or something like that. It is a diffuse phenomenon um, when it's something like uh, circulating electrolytes like calcium or if it's a neurological disease or something like that. Yeah. And for moderate cramping, stretching, uh, passive stretching tends to relieve cramping, but does not actually alter the fluid or electrolyte levels at all. Uh, interestingly, uh, when you talked about people with cirrhosis, there's like this, yep. the pickle paper where they have pickle juice and it like instantly reduces their cramping that they have, but that doesn't affect yeah. electrolytes either. Yeah, the pickle juice supplementation is something that people have actually probably heard of in the context of exercise cramps as well. I think it's been recommended in, in all sorts of uh, settings. And I am admittedly less familiar with data on pickle juice as it relates to exercise associated muscle cramps, but I am familiar with it in the context of cirrhosis because I do sometimes recommend it to folks. And the interesting thing there is that um, it's been shown to relieve cramps like within 30 seconds of people ingesting it. And that's way faster than it could feasibly impact anything in your blood. It's like not even absorbed yet at that point. And so the the, the mechanism that's been suggested is that and that that, that is uh, used to explain that phenomenon is that uh, the acid content in the pickle juice hits some you know receptors in the oropharynx in the throat and the esophagus, and that triggers like a neural reflex that shuts down muscle cramping like immediately, which is super weird and super interesting. Um, I don't know why that would even be a thing that happens, but uh, it's it seems to it seems to work. Yeah, so. and definitely does not alter fluid or electrolyte status, which whether you take anything by mouth is going to take minutes, many minutes to change anything inside of you. Um, but, but yeah, shot of pickle juice. That's got some, got some data there. Um, yeah. So ultimately cramps are probably multifactorial, not really related to fluid and or electrolyte changes in people just walking around, certainly exercising. Um, we think they're mostly related to fatigue and other factors as far as treatment and prevention goes. Treatment uh, is basically self-administered stretching, no specific type, doesn't matter uh, whether it's partner assisted, whether it's you doing it yourself or whatever, but that's the first line sort of treatment here. As far as preventing it, uh, there's good evidence that getting stronger actually reduces the incidence of cramps. So for example, marathoners who experienced cramps were less likely to perform once per week lower extremity strength training in the three months leading up to the race than their non-cramping counterparts, suggesting that strength training may be helpful in preventing cramps. Also uh, controlling fatigue, so the work to rest sort of ratio here, fatigue is hypothesized to be the main fa factor in cramp development and overexertion is often tied to cramps. So it is vital to ensure that athletes exercise with the appropriate training load. Uh, no surprise here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast that we're advocating for appropriate training dose. <laughs> Correct. Uh, as far as stuff that doesn't work, uh, pretty pretty extensive list here. Uh, rehydration is probably not terribly useful due to the time course of effect, so greater than 10 minutes 
by the time you put something in your mouth for it to actually change anything within your bloodstream. And uh, 10 minutes of cramping sounds like agony. Although your patients with severe electrolyte disturbances may in fact have t- 10 minutes of sustained cramping because they're like, there's, I can't do, there's nothing I can do anytime I try to move. The way I'm treating that is not by giving them water. Correct. <laughs> uh, it's not really related to temperature. So not associated with passive heating nor relieved by cooling modalities. So putting ice on a cramp, for example, is not really going to do anything again, because we think this is like fatigue mediated amongst other factors. Not like, oh man, your motor end plate is just too hot. Let's cool it down. So not really effective there. Uh, Many people will say this is probably second, the second most common thing that people say after just drink more water when it, when it comes to cramps is bananas. Um, but potassium is generally not considered an electrolyte of interest in exercise associated muscle cramps. Um, but they do have a lot of potassium and glucose in there. Yeah. I was going to mention that this one is kind of interesting in particular. That it's so commonly recommended because if you have low blood potassium levels, that actually tends to cause the opposite of cramping. It tends to cause more weakness. It is actually more difficult for people to contract their muscles to move. There's a pretty uncommon condition called hypokalemic periodic paralysis, um, where people can have bouts of episodes, you know, bouts of very low blood potassium levels, and they effectively become paralyzed. Um, Now, most situations, that is not what's going on. But the point remains that like, the electrical physiology around muscle contraction is such that low blood potassium levels, which you would be presumably trying to replace with your banana, uh, lead to muscle weakness and, and a more difficult time to contract, not excessive kind of cramping contraction that, that you would, that you would see, um, in that situation. Yeah. Some data suggests that bananas are unlikely to help by increasing blood potassium as patients who are hypohydrated who ingested one or two servings of bananas post-exercise did not actually experience increases in plasma potassium concentrations or plasma volume until an hour after consumption. So it's like, oh no, I've got this cramp. Eat a banana. Has a cramp for an hour. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly, plasma glucose increased significantly uh, when the folks had two servings of bananas, but this effect occurred 15 minutes after they ate it. Uh, So it's like, again, could just sit there with a cramp for 15 minutes waiting for the banana to kick in. Uh, Even though after that 15 minutes, like cramps didn't really abate either. So no real evidence exists on the efficacy of bananas. Uh, Another electrolyte that people commonly discuss is magnesium. A 2020 Cochrane review reported that magnesium supplementation offered no clinically meaningful benefits in terms of cramp frequency, intensity, or duration compared to placebo. So magnesium is out. Salt, when studied in isolation, adding salt to the diet does not seem to affect the incidence of cramps. There are studies showing that like a 6% carbohydrate electrolyte beverage with added salt delayed cramp onset by about 20 minutes compared to when nothing was consumed. But this doesn't really support salt supplementation as the experimental design uh, prohibited identification of the ingredients responsible for this effect because the drink not only contained fluid, but also carbohydrates, which both can you know, affect <laughs> the calculus here. So it's not just like, oh, salt compared to carbohydrates and salt or carbohydrates only, for example. So also the athletes still experience cramping. So probably not terribly useful here either. Uh, with respect to stretching, 
Although static stretching effectively treats cramps, it appears to be ineffective as a prophylactic strategy. One study did three one-minute bouts of proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitative stretching, that's that partner stretching, uh, prior to exercise, and that did not reduce cramp incidence or susceptibility. Um, and in a series of observational studies, researchers consistently failed to demonstrate relationships among flexibility, range of motion, and stretching frequency, duration, or timing, and cramp occurrence. And again, this all makes sense. Like, if we think that cramps are mostly caused by fatigue plus other factors, doing stuff that doesn't really mitigate fatigue or these kind of unknown other factors probably don't make a difference. And so I don't know that I would do any of these things as a prophylactic measure other than training, get strong, make sure to be acclimated to the environment, you know, and exercise. Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay. On the flip side. So that's all with hypohydration. So low amounts of total body water, but there's also a concern of being hyperhydrated. Uh, particularly in individuals using water, sports drinks, et cetera, in large quantities as an effort to maybe reduce cramps if they've been told like, oh, you just got to drink more, uh, for example, or improve recovery from exercise. Or maybe they're under the guise of, you know, some influencer who's like, just drink more water. It's healthy. You know, you got to detox yourself or something. Okay. So look at this water and sports drinks. These are hypotonic solutions, meaning that they contain more water than solutes, more water than stuff in the water compared to your bloodstream. So when you drink a lot of them, they dilute the amount of stuff in your bloodstream. And if you do it too much, boy, you can be in some trouble here. So uh, there is this condition called exercise associated hyponatremia. And a normal a normal lab, the kind of uh, minimum for sodium levels is about 135 uh, millimoles per liter. Now, nearly all of you listening to this, if you exercise, particularly at high intensity, and you checked your sodium level just after you left the gym, it is highly likely that your sodium level is going to be below 135. It just exercise-associated hyponatremia on some level happens. This is like a normal response. We don't know why it necessarily happens, uh, but it happens to a mild degree. Now, when it goes below 130, we start raising our eyebrow like, oh, this is uh, not good. So uh, this, again, as Austin alluded to earlier, is mostly related to a water problem, not a sodium problem. So over drinking these hypotonic fluids, which again, includes sports drinks, which are billed to be like, this is the perfect replacement, recover faster. And it's like, mm-hmm. are we sure about that? Uh, so yeah, especially when people, again, are coached in a way to like, oh, to make sure you drink a lot. Uh, 2014, there was those two reported cases of high school football players who like went home, drank a bunch of Gatorade because they were told to, and, you know, had lost a lot during the two a day practice in the heat of summer. And they ended up with exercise associated hyponatremia. And so what happens there is you can get a bunch of water pulled into the cells of the lungs of the brain. You can get encephalopathy, pulmonary edema. Both of these conditions are potentially fatal, uh, bad news bears. Austin, have you ever seen this in the hospital? Yes. Uh, I mean, I see hyponatremia of every single variety. I feel like I've seen, I've seen every possible way that you can get there, including, you know, exertion exercise related as well as I I remember one other case where it was like a a soldier who there's like, uh, I guess in the military, they provide these soldiers with canteens and they say, here's your hydration protocol, particularly when you're out in the field to maintain adequate hydration, you know, when we're in, you know, summer heat in Texas and things like that. 
and this this kid got sick and so he was held up in like the barracks while he got better from his illness but he was wanted to be a good soldier so he stuck to his hydration protocol so he sat in the barracks and kept drinking just as much as he would otherwise have been recommended if he was like out in the desert like working in the heat and he came in and the sodium was like 120 like very very low um you know for for like an otherwise healthy you know 20 something year old kid and it was like all right we're just gonna take the water canteen away from you and you're gonna pee all this extra water out and get better um but uh we obviously had to have a conversation around that so yeah i've seen all sorts of you know hyponatremia including life-threatening kind that causes seizures and confusion and and things like that so definitely a, a risky thing to to get into and as we mentioned you know the bottom line with it is too much water in or not enough water out for whatever reason and this is a situation where if you're exerting yourself and you have these hypotonic fluid losses through sweat and then you're um but then you're over drinking hypotonic fluids trying to to replace them you can actually still overcome that and dilute yourself down to dangerous levels potentially um we people have also you may have heard about this in the news with like frat hazing and and other water intoxication stuff have to that's this hyponatremia can technically be you know colloquially referred to as water intoxication it's just a matter of how you got there yeah so early signs of this lightheadedness dizzy nausea puffiness of the extremities or face muscle cramps that do not resolve weight gain uh altered mental status seizures that's later stages uh but yeah the and we'll talk about very shortly specific recommendations here but if you take nothing else from this podcast if you take nothing else do not over drink after <laughs> being physically active. One easy way to make sure that you don't do that is whatever amount of weight that you lost from like your normal uh, AM weight, provided you're weighing yourself uh, and whatever you lost during exercise, yeah, you can drink that much back. So if you lost a kilo, you can drink a liter. If you lost two two kilos, you can drink two liters. But if you're doing more than that, you really are putting yourself at an excess risk of diluting down your bloodstream and the, particularly the sodium in your bloodstream. And uh, yeah, bad things can happen. You're not going to be more recovered if your brain is swelling, uh, for example. Just word to the wise. All right, so let's get to our fluid intake recommendations here. The Institute of Medicine, uh, which I think is now the National Academy of Science and Medicine. Is that, does that ring a bell? Yeah, I don't know. They keep changing their name. Yeah. But in any case, uh, they basically said uh, for total water intake from all foods and liquids to be about 3.7 liters for men, that's just under a gallon, and 2.7 liters for women. Uh, Among U.S. adults, men on average consume about three and a half liters of water per day, and women consume about 2.75 liters per day. So you could just look at that and say, eh, we're pretty close. Do people really need to be micromanaging their water intake? And before we went on to this podcast, we were offline. I told Austin, I go, I don't really think most people need to actually worry about their water intake unless they've got a medical condition that compromises fluid status uh, or are highly competitive multiple times training per day, harsh environments, et cetera. And in that case, probably need a higher level of you know management, but really still probably don't need to micromanage this stuff. And he said, eh, we just ended the podcast. We just did it. I was like, <laughs> not satisfying. So this also seems to trend with activity, meaning that the more active people are, the more water they end up drinking. And the less active people are, they tend to drink less. And again, I cannot stress enough how many redundant homeostatic systems we have in place that prevent us from really, really severely decreasing <laughs> our total body water, really affecting the electrolyte concentration in our bloodstream. Uh, it just, man, trust your brain and your kidneys. They're, they're really doing their best out there. Uh, but you know, for the sake of completeness, let's go forward with these fluid intake recommendations. First thing here is 
assessment. There are a number of different ways to assess hydration status, although many of them are impractical and or unreliable for home or in the field use. So for example, you could measure fluid regulation hormones. Uh, you could measure urine specific gravity, urine and or blood osmolarity, et cetera. But this, look, if you don't have access to a research lab, I mean, I measure those things in the hospital all the time, but that's again, not practical for people who are trying to train. Yeah. And at the highest level, I'm sure, uh, I, and I, I know based on, uh, some, uh, some additional research that, yeah, they're, they're getting, uh, athletes, you know, urine specific gravity and they're measuring their sweat rate and their sweat composition. And they're coming up with these individualized protocols. But again, this is dynamic over time, changes with your fitness levels, changes with your, uh, comp competition period and changes, uh, uh, with the environment, of course. So this would need to be done on a regular basis to really hone in on this. And we can probably get close enough using some sort of back of the envelope, uh, good old fashioned uh, know-how here. So uh, just, to, just to say, urine color has actually been used a lot in the literature with varying amounts of success. There used to be a website called hydrationcheck.com and it all it did when you pulled it up was just like a pea color chart. That website is no more, but yeah, th sure. there are many of these things out there. The problem is here uh, under different lighting conditions. So direct light, uh, indirect light, the intensity of the light uh, that can actually change how people rate the color of their urine. And also it's subjective. So it can confound the reading and it really doesn't add much to what uh, we'll do in the tool that we'll end up using, which is really just body weight. So uh, again, total body water is regulated pretty closely. So within 0.2 to 0.5% of body mass. And so we can take an average uh, three-day morning weight done in the nude after you've gone to the bathroom. Uh, and as long as somebody really isn't energy restricted, uh, they're not uh, uh, during their changing their dietary pattern, um, they're not uh, an active uh, menstrual period, stuff like that, this three-day sort of average is really close um, to their sort of you hydrated body weight, or as you would say to somebody who suffers from like congestive heart failure and edema, it's like their dry weight, right? It's like their normal weight. You ask, you ask patients this all the time. Hey, what, what's your, do you actually ask them what their dry weight is when they come in? Or do you look at it in the chart? I don't usually use that, I, I don't usually use that term. Uh, although I do typically try to get a sense of what, you know, if they have any sense of where they tend to live more or less with their weight, but I also put very little stock in that um, because it's still difficult to know, you know, it, it, it's quite common for patients who have those conditions to like be discharged from the hospital still with too much volume and to, to still be congested to some extent. And so what people might think is their normal weight um, might not be accurate, or maybe they've like lost some muscle mass and, you know, not knowing it. And so they're, you know, if they weigh the same, but they've lost muscle mass, then the difference is being made up for with extra water that they're hanging on to. And so I don't put a ton of stock into their weights, honestly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, and, and yes, of course, your weight does fluctuate day to day based on, again, the changing dietary pattern, um, or remaining GI contents, particularly if the dietary pattern changes, if you're actively trying to lose weight or gain weight. Yes. That's why we're doing an average of three days just in general. But yeah, if you're having ma massive swings in your weight due to some of these things, uh, what you would look for is like a consistency among three days where you're, you're pretty close. Uh, but you know, you see on Instagram, particularly around the holidays or other social media, but around the holidays, people are like, if your weight went up by two pounds, you know, after Thanksgiving or something like that, uh, you know, this is mostly just water weight and retained GI contents and whatever. And it's like, sure, that's true. I probably wouldn't use the day after Thanksgiving as one of my weights. Yeah. <laughs> to for, to assess for you hydration, but yeah, sure. Any uh, three day uh, period again after you go to the bathroom, first thing in the morning, do it in the nude. Get your get your body weight uh, average, and that again is a pretty good representation of your you hydrated state.
Okay. Uh, so the goal here is to start exercise within about 1% of this body weight. So minus 1%, plus 1%, and keep it from dipping below about 2% body mass loss during a workout. Uh, and this is particularly true when the urine color is pale-ish. Now, people are like, well, what do you mean by pale? And I'm like, all right, well, look, it can be clear, it can be light yellow, it can be faint yellow, whatever. Uh, not like dark brown <laughs> or dark yellow. But uh, in any case, I think using body weight uh, based on the existing evidence seems like a reasonable tool. Uh, so yeah, starting exercise within about 1% of your body weight, plus or minus, and then keeping it from dropping down below 2% uh, would be fine. But this is problematic because how do you ensure that during a workout you're not below that two percent mark well you'd have to strip down get on a scale and be like oh i'm i'm three percent i need to drink more so and that's not really practical either uh what we're really trying to do here is kind of come up with an individualized recommendation for you uh and so doing some sort of tracking here would be useful meaning that all right, if I started a workout at this weight and then I did this workout in this particular environment and I ended that workout at this weight, again, done in the nude, and I drank approximately this much during that workout, that gives you some data. Here's how much I lost. Here's how much I took in. Gives you a number. And so you can estimate based on that how much you would need to drink in addition to what you were normally drinking uh, to maintain your body weight within this sort of narrowish range. And if you're doing multiple different workouts, types of workouts, different environments, different durations, stuff like that, you might have multiple data points. But again, this is all for that person who's trying to get out that last little bit of performance. Not like, I'm just trying to meet the physical activity guidelines, bro. Like, do I need to worry about this? If that's you, turn this off, dude. Turn it off. And, and, <laughs> you know? And I would add, I mean, for, I feel like you were, you and I are generally concerned with performance, although still not necessarily trying to squeeze like every possible drop. Cause I know I don't necessarily care that much, but if I think about what 2% is for me and, and like I do that math, it would take a lot of work for me to actually lose that amount. Um, course of a powerlifting training session in other activities, sports, things like that, and environments, sure, more feasible, but like training in a gym or training in my garage, doing a powerlifting session. I mean, that for 2%, it's going to be almost four pounds for you or I, uh, that is a fair amount. And I don't know that I would routinely get anywhere near that, particularly if I was just like following my thirst mechanism, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is what I tend to do. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that if I dropped five pounds during a particular session, um, I would feel pretty bad um, and would, you know, be inclined to compensate during that session. And so this is, again, like just to illustrate that a lot of these mechanisms will will help you. And it is unlikely that most of the folks who are doing this kind of routine training are routinely losing more than 2% in a given training session without feeling bad enough that they're inclined to compensate. But if you want to be extra sure, then sure, I'd be doing these measurements too if I was like, you know, competitive and I, and I wasn't very confident in this being the case. Yeah, I feel more strongly about people engaged in like sustained uh, extended duration sort of conditioning efforts or like really high volume intense sessions that are and they're sweating a lot you know or whatever yeah. or if they're just concerned like if you're concerned you want to check this off the list cool get some data uh, but you know I think about I wake up 205 207 most days something like that I cannot think of a situation where I would head into the gym at 200 201 202 yeah like i ate breakfast i probably had another meal i've been drinking you know whatever i want to throughout the day but if i did yeah you're probably right i'd feel you know quite crummy i'd feel thirsty and i would take care of it um 
So yeah, in any case, there are a number of guidelines that are available for actually like how much you should drink, when you should drink it, what you should drink. And so most of these come from the ACSM's 2007 guidelines or the National Athletic Trainer Association's 2000, I think it's 2017 guidelines. So they recommend like if, for example, you wake up and you're significantly under your normal dehydrated weight, uh, they would want you to consume about five to seven milliliters per kilogram body weight four hours before you train. And then if you're still uh, under your normal dehydrated weight um, and or you haven't gone to the bathroom a few times because of that, you should do another three to five milliliters per kilogram two hours prior. So again, this is less than half a liter for most of the people list- listening to this at each uh, time. So we're not talking about con- slamming liters of fluid, you know, prior to workout, we're talking about half a liter, probably less for most folks, uh, listening to this. Um, so again, collecting some data may be useful here. Uh, and again, just the problem here is calculating sweat rates, right? Uh, most published val- values fall somewhere between 0.4 to one and a half liters of sweat loss per hour. Again, this depends on the environment, the activity, how big the person is in general, the higher intensity is, the hotter it is, uh, the larger the person is, the more they're going to sweat. Uh, but you know, people be different. If you've learned nothing from these 211 episodes that we've published, people be different. It is, they don't think that they do, but they do. Uh, so yeah, you can get some information based on, all right, here's my normal starting weight. Here's my normal ending weight. Don't wear the clothing that you sweat it through during the session. Cause that's going to confound your, your data point. And you can sort of figure out based on the difference between your, you hydrated weight, the weight after your workout, how much you drank during a workout, how much on average you should be drinking to sort of maintain, uh, your, you hydrated, uh, weight, uh, and state, uh, without necessarily risking overshooting. After a workout, it is recommended that individuals replace 100 to 150% of the amount of body mass loss when recovery time is limited, usually less than four hours. Put simply, this is about one and a half liters of water for each kilogram of body weight loss. For once per day training, hydration can be achieved with mostly drinking and eating normally. You, You don't have to like micromanage this stuff. So if you're going to the gym, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, like just erase the last few minutes from your brain. Just not, not that important. But if you're training multiple times per day, or again, or have serious concerns about this, sure, you can weigh yourself afterwards. And if you lost a kilo, having one and a half liters consumed low and slow over the next few hours could put you, you know, from a hydration status back and ready to go within four hours. But if you're not going to train again to the next day, wouldn't worry about it. Just wouldn't, yeah. would not worry about it. Uh, as far as what to ingest and how to get it, oral fluids are preferred due to simplicity access and a high degree of efficacy. People tend to think that uh, IV hydration is superior to oral hydration, but they both offer comparable restoration of plasma osmolality, plasma volume, the blood flow to the skin, stroke volume from the heart, cardiac output, heart rate, skin temperature, rectal temperature, if you're checking that, performance and fluid regulatory hormone responses. People just geek out on IVs. They're like, it's got to be better because it's special and I need specialized care. And it's like... uh, I mean, how many times do you shut down like an intern or resident? Austin is like, oh, they sh- let's start an IV and put them on fluids. It's like the person can drink. It could, be fluid, it could be antibiotics. It could be all sorts of things. I'm like, they got a mouth. <laughs> yeah, his mouth is <laughs> it's functioning. They have a gut that's functioning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do that. Yeah, so IV stuff is really uh, reserved for people who cannot drink or eat things due to either trauma or they're uptunded, right? They're just not able, conscious to do it uh, or some other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and further, just like an IV left to like drip due to gravity, 
is not sending a bunch of fluid into you compared to like chugging water, for example. Like if you were looking at like the rate, you know, whatever, it's like you're not start, starting large bore IVs, multiple sites, right. hammering fluid <laughs> under pressure into people's systems. So yeah, I know that IV bars are a whole thing, but it's like, dude, if you're not so nauseous that you can't drink, like just you should drink. There's some uh, interesting data on like heat illness and like how to treat that. And, you know, one of it's like, yeah, get the people in an ice bath, et cetera. And then if they're not able to drink fast enough or, you know, otherwise kind of out of it, yep, that point, start an IV. But, you know, people do this like after powerlifting weigh-ins, for example, uh, particularly in untested right. federations. And it's like, bro, you've got 24 hours. You're going <laughs> to be fine. I'd be more worried about like phlebitis or like some other complication yeah. of like an I start starting an IV or like you imagine if the day before a powerlifting meet, you got like a pretty large bore IV in your antecubital vein and then, you know, you're benching or whatever, just <laughs> blow the scab <laughs> off there. <laughs> Jet of blood shoots out. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, it's against water regulation. So if the sport that you happen to be participating in, that is so important that you consider an IV. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't dude. just can't, can't do it. Uh, there's not really even convincing research to support IV fluid administration prior to competition for performance enhancement, dehydration prevention, or muscle cramp prevention just doesn't exist. Current studies just don't support the use of IV fluids for rehydration when an individual can tolerate oral fluids. So that's it. All right, uh, some fast facts because we get asked this stuff all the time. There's no real evidence for electrolyte replacement supplements during activities of less than four hours in duration and or when there's regular access to fluids and food during long activities. So people are like, oh, do I need to take a salt supplement or you know, multi multiple electrolytes within a, a tablet or something? It's like, for lifting weights? No. I go squat five sets or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nope, definitely don't need that. If you're talking about like a marathon ultra endurance event or whatever, if you don't have access to fluids and, and various foods and you need, you know, something, uh, that you can grab and go sure. But I don't think it's going to be useful from, we talked about cramps, probably not useful for, from that. It's really just sort of a mitigation protocol because you don't have access to fluids and food. That's really kind of all, all you're doing there. Uh, as far as what types of fluids, all types of fluids can be used water, spring water, etc. a diet, uh, non-nutritive, uh, sweetened beverages. It's really based on the person's preferences, the palatability, uh, energy needs. So do they actually need calories because they have a limited amount of time to recover? And that's again, only a few hours and context. Uh, again, if this is just a once per day training thing, I don't know that you need some super top secret post-workout shake to rehydrate and get your electrolyte status back to normal ASAP. But if you're competing at the CrossFit games and you get another event in an hour, well, that may be different. Uh, also, caffeine does not induce diuresis during exercise. So people aren't losing more fluid if they have caffeine before a workout, during a workout, anything like that. Uh, interestingly, beverages with less than 4% alcohol do not dehydrate individuals. There's actually an interesting study on soccer players. They ran for 45 minutes on a treadmill, and they investigated whether water, beer, or non-alcoholic beer uh, basically sustained uh, hydration, total body water levels better uh, compared to each other and also serum uh, uh sodium levels guess what did the best the non-alcoholic beer. hell yeah because it's got sodium in it baby <laughs> it's like the only not like it, with the relative degree of like hypotonicity like non-alcoholic beer is the best and doesn't have a ton of alcohol in it <laughs> obviously yeah i mean we there is obviously some some evidence in the context of um you know the the oral rehydration solutions like what's recommended by the who and things like that to treat like diarrheal illnesses and cholera and things 
that that basically has some water, has some salt, and has some sugar in it. And there's you know s- specific transporters in the gut that uh, tend to respond well. They're co-transporters that use both sodium and glucose together, and 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 some water tends to follow those a little bit better than than plain water alone. And so when I have patients with diarrheal illnesses or who need those kind of situations, then just have them Google the WHO oral rehydration solution recipe, which is very trivially easy to, to, to make at home and, and have them use that. Um, but this is also interestingly, you know, there's some of these like commercial products that claim to have like proprietary technology that help you rehydrate better. And it's really, it's just like salt and sugar in this that uses those transporters. Um, I'll leave the, the brands of those things uh, uh, off right now, unless you, unless you want to fire some shots. No, no, I'm good. I, it's just, yeah, the, the, I think the, uh, one of the oral rehydration solution stuff that the easiest one to make is like, it's like half strength apple juice. It's like you take apple juice and you dilute it by half, add a little salt to it. And you're like, like salt or something like that. Yeah. And it's like, it's trivially easy to do. Yeah. Similar with Gatorade, although Gatorade is, as we've said, still too a little bit a little bit too hypotonic still, and so you would still add a little bit more sodium to it. But of course, most people would not like the taste as much. If you the le- as the legend goes, so Gatorade at uh, University of Florida, you know, is a gator, the Florida Gators, to aid them in their conquest for a football championship, uh, NCAA football championship. Apparently, the original strength Gatorade was twice as strong, twice as concentrated as it is now, but it tasted terribly. Yes. <laughs> That tracks. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say about fast facts regarding hydration, uh, there's been this, man, I don't even know for how long, but for probably decades longer than we've been in this space, that if you drink more water, that's good for quelling your appetite. Or, oh, if you're hungry, maybe you're just thirsty. So just drink more water. So this has actually been studied. Yes, the water content of foods tend to be satiating or filling, meaning that if you consume foods with a higher water content, those tend to be more satiating than foods with a lower water content. But the foods with higher water content tend to have dietary fiber, high amounts of dietary protein, things of that nature, lower amounts of dietary sodium, lower amounts of added sugar, lower amounts of added fats, tend to be less tasty, all these sorts of things. Adding water to a meal has almost no effect on appetite as as evidenced by the amount of calories that people eat later on in the day. So like, if you're like, I just don't want to be hungry later, I don't know that chugging water in in your meal is going to make a difference. But you know, if you want a tasty treat and diet soda, for example, gets you there, like hats off. I just don't know. That's an evidence-based recommendation. It's just like, as far as affecting appetite. So take home message here, use the body weight change to guide individual fluid management. Probably no need to micromanage this unless you're training uh, a ton uh, and or under harsh environments and or concern about the risk of hypohydration, in which case get some data, do it, do what you got to do. Uh, you can use water and other non-alcoholic beverages unless you're uh, competitive with limited time to recover. Uh, would advise for low and slow consumption of fluids uh, and avoid weight gain compared to your eu-hydrated state to avoid this exercise-associated hyponatremia. Um, for most folks, eating and drinking normally is probably sufficient. Uh, but if you're in a rush, limited amount of time, multiple competitions or training sessions per day, you can use a combination of liquid carbohydrates, essential amino acids, and a dash of salt is probably enough. Um, it looks like a 6% solution of carbohydrates plus uh, you know, a scoop of essential amino acids plus a pinch of salt, probably good enough for most people. Uh, and yeah, as far as to prevent cramps, would recommend training instead of not training and also managing your training load. Uh, and overall, just, hey, guys, trust trust your brain and your kidneys. They're, they're just doing the most. They, they're really doing a good job. You don't, you don't need to micromanage this stuff. Uh, Austin, any, anything else you want to add? No, I would just reiterate that last point. 
that's a, that's a good one. Is homeostasis a joke to you? Unless you're, unless you're, you know, in the hospital and then sometimes I have to take over. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so yeah, this has been episode 211 on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Again, reminder, if you're interested in winning a custom Pioneer belt, we have a contest uh, and a giveaway going on through their Instagram page. You can go over to Pioneer underscore fit on Instagram. Make sure you follow them. You're going to have to do that. You have to like the post uh, that has the Barbell Medicine belt featured in it. That'll be published by the time you're listening to this and comment on that post. That'll enter you in to this giveaway. And then we'll pick a winner uh, by next Tuesday. So you have from now until next Tuesday to uh, to enter. And then, yeah, you can get a free custom belt. Just no exotic materials. So if you set on snakeskin, this is probably not for you. Everybody else, make sure you do that. Uh, and before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star review and a rating. It really helps drive uh, traffic to our podcast. So we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everybody here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. <laughs>